Comparison is the thief of joy. Never, ever compare yourself to anybody. If you want to be unhappy in your life, for sure, compare your life to others, especially people you went to school with or your next door neighbors. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. Angela Champ, thanks for being on the show. It's not a straight line. This is going to come out as episode number nine. Angela, I I read that you're passionate about lifelong learning. You want to inspire others to achieve their best potential. Angela writes, she blogs, she speaks on a variety of leadership and professional development and personal growth topics. I even read that you were named one of Canada's top 20 HR leaders on the HDR Global 100 and on the most inclusive HR influencer list. Uh, You also had a book came out that is called It Depends. Mm -hmm. It's uh, employee relations case studies for HR professionals. And students, you have a new book soon coming out later in fall 2020 called The Squiggly Line Career. And you've been an executive mainly in the HR space within insurance, oil and gas, engineering, tourism, and banking. So thank you so much for joining. And a special shout out to Eric LaPointe who uh, connected us. Jordan, great to be here. Thank you. And uh, likewise, thanks to Eric for connecting us. I think there were a lot of commonalities in my background and yours, not necessarily in our job titles, but certainly in our past. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. So Angela, I think you're in Vancouver. Is that correct? Yes, I am. It's beautiful. It's sunny, not yet raining. So all is good. So if we go back to when you were a student, say in university or college in your early career, I've read that you really believe in developing human potential. So what was the potential that you saw in who Angela Champ might become back then? Was there any idea of what you want to pursue as a career? And are you originally from out west in Canada? No, actually, I'm from uh, Windsor, Ontario, not too far from where you are right now. And where I saw the potential in what Angela Champ was eventually going to become is my parents were both uh, blue-collar workers. My mom worked in the automotive industry. She worked for General Motors in the trim plant assembly. My dad worked for CN as a machinist. He repaired uh, train engines. And so that life uh, in Windsor with the automotive industry and what my dad did was sort of what I knew growing up. But somehow I thought, what else can people do? Because neither of those roles really interested me. And when you know we're growing up, people ask you, what do you want to be? And I did the typical answers that lots of children do. You know, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a social worker. I thought I'd be a lawyer all fantastic professions and in one way or the other I've kind of achieved that I'll explain that a little later but what I discovered is that you know we're pressured to say what do you want to be when you grow up and what the heck does an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 22-year-old know what they want to be when they grow up and I decided to come out to Vancouver to go to university and it really opened my eyes there were professions and jobs and paths that I could take that had never even occurred to me because I didn't even know they existed. So the potential, I think, was uh, taking that first step and 
deciding I was going to leave my hometown, leave everybody behind that I knew and start fresh. And it was very nerve wracking. I'd never been away from home, never been away from my parents. I did have a sister at the time that lived here. So that helped with the transition. But it was really about coming here and having my eyes open about all these jobs that I never even knew existed. And that was, I'm not going to date myself and tell you when that was. That was a time when most of the jobs that are available now didn't even exist. So imagine the evolution since then. Do you think your sister had an influence on, on you coming out there? What was the main decision you were making leaving? I mean, aside from, from Windsor being spectacular in comparison to Vancouver. I'm joking if anyone's living, <laughs> listening from outside the country. But but what, what drew you out there? Was it really the opportunity, your sister? Was it? the scenery in the mountains. Yes. Yeah, so at the, at the risk of knowing that my, my dad's going to listen to this podcast and phone me up and chew me out on this, I really wanted to go away to university. I thought this was going to be the first step. And so I had applied to a number of schools, including University of Toronto and Queens and Vancouver. And I got accepted to all the schools that I applied to. But my dad wanted me to go somewhere where I knew somebody. And by chance, by luck, my sister happened to be living out here. So I ended up coming out to UBC only because my sister lives here. Now, a year into moving here, she moved away. So uh, it was just lucky and fortuitous that I came here, landed here, and have been here. I have been in the West, not necessarily Vancouver, but have been here ever since. That's what led me out here, for sure. And so once you were out there and you had graduated from UBC, what was kind of that very first opportunity you got in the work world? My first opportunity, I just realized I forgot to answer the first part of your question, which was, was my sister an influence? So while I was going to university, my sister worked for a company down that was headquartered in downtown Vancouver. And all my days off at school or when I had an afternoon off, I would go come into downtown Vancouver from UBC and have lunch with her. And she was up on like the 30th floor of this, you know, shiny, all windowed building and she would be wearing a suit and everybody was wearing a suit. And everybody looked, she was an accountant and everybody would look very professional and, and very serious in their job. And I thought, oh, what is this? Because it was such a different world from the uh, assembly line and automotive industry that I grew up with and that I knew. So that was my first influence. I thought, oh, maybe I could work in an office. Like seriously, that's how naive I was. Is I'm going to work in an office. So what was my first job out of university? So when I graduated and I decided I was going to stay in Vancouver, nobody was hiring. We were in a very tight market here in terms of, of work. And so the very first job I got was as the mailroom clerk. Actually, that was my title, the mailroom clerk for our local insurance, public insurance company here in British Columbia. And I got it on the basis of being able to type 90 words a minute, which fortunately for me, I learned when I was in grade nine. Unfortunately for me, I had just finished four years in university and I got a job based on my grade nine typing skills. So yeah, you can imagine how, how pleased my parents were on that. But it really set me off. First of all, it was a job in an office, so that was awesome. And although it wasn't my dream job, because like a lot of grads, I thought I was going to graduate from university and become, you know, the next CEO of some major company. Didn't quite work out that way. It really opened my eyes to, again, some other job opportunities that I hadn't even considered. I only landed in an insurance company because they were the only ones that were hiring. I never would have thought of insurance as an industry. And now I've spent much of my career in either insurance or banking. 
along with some other industries, but that really was a big part of it. And you mentioned an interesting point because right now we're all going through COVID and it's a very tough time for a lot of people to get jobs and a lot of people are laid off. But is there anything you advise people on? I sure do. So uh, I read, uh, while I was writing my book, this particular long career, I read a statistic and a report that 54% or more of graduates never work in the field in which they went to school. And so what I would say, the advice that I like to give people is don't limit yourself. Even if you've graduated from a certain field or a certain discipline, don't feel like you have to limit your career aspirations just to that. Be open-minded. Accept a role, even if it's not what you think. Hey, did I think I was going to graduate from university and be the mailroom clerk for an insurance company? No, never. But if I hadn't had that particular experience, I wouldn't be where I am today because so much of what I am and what's happened since built on that. When I was a mailroom clerk, I started this women's network in my company that ran for nine years. So I got to network with just about the entire company because I was networking with people from other mailrooms in the organization up all the way up to the CEO, I was known. So I got to get involved in the mentorship program. I got to get involved in leadership development. I got to participate in, in projects that I never would have if I didn't put myself out there. So don't limit yourself. Don't think that just because you've graduated or, or you have your, your mindset on a certain profession that that's all there is. When you and I were talking, you mentioned that you really wanted to be in, in sports somehow, in the sports industry, in whatever capacity, and yet that's not what you're doing right now. That doesn't mean that where you are right now might be your last role, but if you limit yourself, if you say, I'm only going to stay in one industry, it may not work for you. So be open to opportunities, make sure you're saying yes, and don't think of it necessarily as the final step, but as a stepping stone. Even that stepping stone lasts 11 years like it did for me not as a mailroom clerk but you know with one company you just never know where it's going to take you so touching on that in university i I saw on your linkedin it was a ba of political science you did is that correct i did because i thought i was going to be a lawyer okay so that (laughs) and what type of lawyer did you think you might want to become one that gets to argue every point because i love to argue Well, I think becoming like this chief <laughs> HR officer, I'm assuming, and you wrote a book on employee relations, so I'm assuming you've gotten to do that a fair bit throughout your career. What, what do you think made you decide not to go that route? The fact that I didn't get accepted into law school, really. I did I did write my LSAT and I did well, but I only applied to two law schools. I applied to UBC and the University of Windsor uh, Law School, and neither of them accepted me, which was a huge blow to my ego because uh, I had thought through being a political science major that that was going to be the ultimate next step, right? That was sort of the logical one. And when I didn't get into that, I wrote the exam to be in the foreign service. I thought, well, if I can't be a lawyer, I'm going to do like really neat diplomatic stuff and travel the world and maybe one day be an ambassador. And I wrote the foreign service exam and did really well. But when I got interviewed, I didn't get the job. And so my life was, uh, has been, even still to this point, a series of ideas or dreams, and I go for it, and it doesn't quite work out, but it doesn't mean that it's the end. There's always something more. I mentioned that as an eight-year-old, you know, I said, oh, I was going to be a social worker, I was going to be a teacher, I was going to be a lawyer, and 
although I'm actually none of those by education or by profession, a lot of the work that I have done have elements in that. You just mentioned about being in HR. So much of what I do has a legal aspect to it. There's the compliance side. There's the employee relations side. There's labor relations. So much of it. So even though I'm not a lawyer, I deal with legal aspects every single day. If you've ever worked with an employee in distress in a company or even been one yourself, there's a little bit of a social work aspect to it when a person is in distress because of everything that's going on around them. And you have to have the emotional maturity and the knowledge to know how to help them or what resources to offer them. So there's a little bit of social work aspect. Although I'm not a teacher, I spent the early part of my career in learning and development and pursued a diploma in adult education. So I am kind of a teacher. Uh, of sorts. And so just because you think your dream hasn't come true doesn't mean you don't have aspects of it in the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And you said you're the type of person that has a lot of passion projects and you're interested in anything and everything. And I think you've been able to do things in your career, like you just said, that have aspects of being a lawyer or a teacher. Did anyone ever tell you, hey, Angela, you should really focus or you shouldn't get involved in all of these other things because you're looking at too many different things? You know, what do you tell people about that? Or what did you tell yourself? Did you ever say to yourself, you know what, I want to be the best CHRO I can be and I'm going to just focus solely on that, whether it was at Intact or Prospera? Yeah, I'm going to argue and say that I probably am the best CHRO I can be, not because I solely focused on it, but because I was able to bring in a richness of experiences from so many other things I did, not just from work, but from my hobbies that play into the work that I do. I am interested in everything and anything, and not just in human resources, but in other jobs. If you can bring in ideas from other disciplines, it just makes it that much better. So, for example, in human resources, I often, particularly around recruitment, I say we need to think like a marketer. We need to be approaching how to find candidates, how we go to career fairs, how we build our employer brand and our reputation. We need to think like a marketer. And so I went back to school and I did a marketing communications program through BCIT. And, and so when you can bring in ideas and experiences from other disciplines or other professions, I think that actually helps you be better because you're able to connect the dots and you also have a broader view of the interconnectedness of work and business and not just having one linear view. And there's nothing wrong when people choose to pursue one particular career. You see that all the time. Engineers who go to engineering school and become engineers, lawyers, um, people in HR who did an HR degree, and they pursue that as a profession. And they're, they're great at it. And I would also argue that you can be great at a profession, even if that wasn't your sole focus, if you are able to demonstrate learning agility, if you're open to feedback, if you're a lifelong learner, and if you have strong emotional intelligence to really pinpoint where maybe you have some weaknesses or you need some help and to manage relationships. Because so much of work is really about relationship building. For sure. that That's interesting. And I, and I agree with you. I think the things that you've been able to do outside and at least in my career, that's given me the ability to perform in my actual job and improve my skill set 
skill set there because it's improving upon my strengths. Angela, I really want to get into uh, the book you're going to release and some things about your writing, but if you were to give me an idea in the audience, an idea of your career, it's of course in different industries, what what would be your, your summary of the different positions as you went through HR? Were you somebody who was in employee relations roles and then compensation, maybe some LR recruiting, and then it all came together for you to get to that top chief HR officer level? What was the route? So I like to call my uh, human resources career really an accidental human resources career. I, as I mentioned, I started as a mailroom clerk at an insurance company, and then I was a claims adjuster. I did fraud investigations. I did bodily injury work. So I really was on the operations side of insurance for a really long time. And then uh, in the last five years of my of my career with, with this company, I was in learning and development, but it was still part of operations. It wasn't part of human resources. So I left and I joined a different company in uh, car rental, and I was the revenue manager where I did some coaching, I did some learning and development, I did a little bit of HR work when they had to hire somebody. But really my role was to help the counter staff increase their incremental sales. So it was all about revenue generation. And really I had to know the business, I had to know the customers, I had to know our products inside and out, I had to be able to motivate and coach the sales staff. When I left there, uh, I ended up moving to a different city. I ended up moving to Calgary, and I joined ATB Financial, which is a financial institution in Alberta. I joined them in their L&D department, learning development, and that was part of human resources, the L&D department, but it wasn't human resources. And so there, it was about project implementation. I supported commercial banking and business banking. We implemented a derivative desk. So in the meantime, I haven't done any human resources yet. I was doing my master's program at this time. I was just, just wrapping it up. And I ended up doing my thesis on a human resources strategy to attract and retain Indigenous employees in the oil and gas sector. And so Petro-Canada ended up hiring me into their HR department in order to implement the findings from my thesis. Well, that was my first HR job. And there I was strategic sourcing advisor. So basically, I... I helped the HR group figure out how we were going to increase participation of Indigenous employees, immigrants, women, uh, new grads. I wasn't there very long when I got a call um, to join an engineering firm as their director of HR. And so this is where I say that my career has been an accidental one because they, they hired me as the director of HR. And I've had almost no, by this point, I've had almost no HR experience. I didn't go to school for HR. I did have a learning and development background, but not really part of HR. And the only experience I had was my thesis, the research I did for my thesis, and the 10 months I had spent with Petro Canada up until that point, but with a very singular focus. So how I landed with this engineering and dramatics firm was really about being able to translate my experience from other um, professions that I've had, other jobs that I had, into what they were looking for. So what is HR? In HR, you have to know legislation, you have to know common law and case law, you have to deal with upset people, you have to coach and you have to influence and you have to do program development. Well, as an insurance adjuster, I had to know legislation, I had to know case law, I had to understand how to work with lawyers, I had to understand compliance. As a revenue manager with a car rental company, uh, it was about program development. It was about incentive programs and compensation. And so I did all of these connections for the person that I ended up 
working for who hired me say, I didn't have any HR experience. I certainly didn't have any director of HR experience, but I was able to relate what I had done in my career up until that point to what they were looking for. And there's a little bit of luck involved, I will tell you, because she took a chance on me. And twice in my career, they've taken a chance on me where I've had no experience and it's, and it's worked out okay. So that was my first H, real HR job. I joined them as the director of HR, but I became the VP of HR three months later based on, on what I had been able to do with them in that company. So I really, really had, I don't know if working in labor relations, Jordan, Jordan would have helped you uh, get to where you want. You got to do what you're, what you love to do. You got to be able to translate that to be able to get to where you want to go. You know what? I, I honestly thought I, I looked at a lot of people that I did my master's with. And if I'm being totally vulnerable, like 10 years after my master's, you know, I, I had this idea in my head that they were making X and I, I was doing what I enjoyed, but I was still making Y. And I'm like, this is crazy. But, you know, I've really, I, I do like what I do and it energizes me and eventually you do find different great opportunities. So I, I've stuck with it. And I think sometimes you have to realize, okay, just because the person out of business school became a consultant doesn't mean that you would have done great in that job or means it was for you. I think you mentioned something that I've struggled with a lot in different roles. And and when I was going to the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, I was lucky enough that the person that hired me, I had networked with in 2012. Uh, I met him at a conference and then we kept in touch. And then in 2018, he had the chance to hire me six years later. And, you know, I always believe in relationships like that. But I did hear from a lot of people, you know, you have to make your skills transferable, which is true. But when you were doing that, you also had the MBA now behind you. Do you think they were giving you more of a look? And probably they were because of the MBA. Because I guess the question I was I'm asking is you can show how many transferable skills you have till the end of the day. But at the same time, you have to come across the right recruiter and right hiring manager. And like you said, it's a bit of luck who is going to listen because there's been so many times I've been interviewed in the last eight years where I'm like, my skills are transferable, but they don't want to see that, which is okay too. And they have every right to do that. Is there anything you'd like to mention about transferable skills and how you've seen it in your career and what you, what you tell other people? I spend an entire chapter in my upcoming book, The Squiggly Line Career, just on that. And I'll tell you, it does drive me crazy when uh, recruiters, hiring managers, human resources people look only at the job title and, and, and the length of time spent in that job title to determine whether a person's qualified to do the job or not. But I'm sure you've experienced it in any job you've had where you somebody's been in that job for five years. And they're actually not really very competent, but on a resume, it looks great because they've got five years experience in that. And I often say, when you have experience in something, are you somebody who keeps growing and adding to your skills in those five years? Or are you a person that has one year experience that you've repeated four times, right? And so that's uh, something that I talk a lot about with every HR team that I work with. When I'm in larger groups of HR, I really challenge them. Now, there's some barriers to that. We already talked to someone who's just a matter of a little bit of luck. Sometimes it's that the recruiter or the hiring manager are so overwhelmed with work that really they're just trying to take the shortcut. It's not the best way, but they think it's the best 
best way, right? If we can just get that bum in the seat. So I'm just going to, I'm going to program the ATS. So it looks for these keywords and, and only those resumes are going to come to my attention because I just don't have time. I'll take that seven seconds, read the resume and that's it. Sometimes you have a recruiter or, a, or an HR person who is progressive and thinks beyond the skill set or the job title, excuse me. But the hiring, it's hard to convince the hiring manager because the hiring manager doesn't know. They just need that, that person. They need that person that's got the five years experience. And when you challenge them, you say, why five? Why not three? Why not eight? Why not one? Often they can't tell you why because it's just what they know. And so there's an education component that comes to it. So I, I spend quite a bit of time in my book talking about transferable skills. And it's really about, first of all, if you are in human resources and you are posting a job, Really look at that job description. So much of what's written in a, in a job description when you're posting a job is is just fluff or people don't know why it's there. There was a funny tweet that went out about six months ago from uh, a fellow who had invented a particular app and he invented it five years ago and the job posting asked for eight years of experience on this app. And he's like, I wouldn't even qualify and I invented this. And so sometimes when we post jobs, we're, we just sort of like slap with what was up there before. We don't even question it. Like, why do you need a university degree? Why do you need five years experience? So that's the first thing. But what I say to candidates, and this could be very controversial. I expect I'm going to get a ton of hate mail when I say this. But I say get rid of the resume. Instead, write a letter. And in the letter, you say, this is what you're looking for. This is what I've done in that. So you're looking for somebody who can create programs for you. Here's how I did it in this job, this job, and this job. You're looking for somebody who can create a compensation program. Here's the incentive programs I did as the revenue manager. You're looking for somebody who understands case law and legislation. Here's how I did it as a claims adjuster. And so I know cover letters are very controversial among the HR community. I prefer them. I say make it easy for the uh, recruiter to hire you. Tell them why they should hire you. So sometimes you just need to um, be very specific. I often, even for yourself as a candidate, even if you don't send in a cover letter, make a table and on it, write out what the company's looking for. So they're looking for this and they're looking for that. And on the other side of the table in the second column, write down what you have that exactly matches or very closely matches. The other thing I'll suggest is don't wait until you're 100%. You think you have 100% of the qualifications. Uh, women particularly are really bad for this. They'll apply They'll wait and apply only if they have 100% of the qualifications. Heck, apply when you have 50. I got my first director of HR job with almost no HR experience. I'm proof that it works. You can transfer your skills and still be very successful in your role. You said that, uh, you know, women in particular sometimes won't want to apply that role. And I remember the first time we connected over the phone. I said something like, you know, doing this podcast in my job now, I feel like I'm finally have the confidence and I, I've been let out of it myself. And you said to me, it's really interesting you say that because a lot of, of males don't, I don't know if you said admit that, but what what did you mean by that? Do you find that males versus females in the workplace? And I, and I know you've got this, this great YouTube show or used to, used to do it called, I think it's work like a girl. Yeah. So what was that comment? What struck you about what I said that, that differed from, from other people you've seen in the workplace or spoke with? There's a lot of talk uh, among women's groups, women's networks, friends, people at work 
um, but also on social media about the imposter syndrome. And you typically tend to hear women talk about imposter syndrome much more frequently than you than you hear about men having it. And because a lot of women like, oh, I can't apply for that job. I, I don't have all the experience or I can't, you know, I can't put my hand up for that project because they'll never hire me or, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure if they would give me that promotion if I put my name into it. And so as women, we tend to hold ourselves back. And I'm speaking very generally. Of course, not every woman does, but, but generally. And, and when you dig down, you say, why? Why do you hold yourself back from doing that? They say, well, it's an imposter. They're going to figure out I can't do it. At which point I point out that I became a vice president of human resources with all this human resources experience. But I digress. But to hear a man say that is, is not very common. I don't know if it's because they're not given the space to admit it or whether men feel like they can't admit it because somehow it, it makes them weak and it doesn't make them weak. You know what it makes them? It makes men self-aware. It means that you have a high level of emotional intelligence to say, I'm feeling a little bit unsure or a little bit insecure about this. Maybe I need to reach out to some friends or some network just to get some coaching or guidance or resources or reassurance. But you don't hear men admit that as often. So I think a lot of women who talk about imposter syndrome assume men don't have it because a lot of men don't mention it. But when you said it, a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, huh, maybe men do feel the imposter syndrome. They just don't talk about it because they don't give them the space and the confidence to talk about the fact that they don't have confidence. You know, maybe we put a lot of expectations on men on their shoulders, like you have to know it all. You have to, you know, we say men are more assertive or more aggressive and men are, maybe they're not. Maybe we just assume they are. And we've not given men the space to say, you know what, I can use a little bit of reassurance and guidance too. Yeah, I agree. Maybe they just do need need the space. Or maybe it's the ones that don't admit it get overpowered by the overly confident people or the, even the narcissistic leaders out there can, can paint a really poor picture. Yes. Since this is called it, it's not a straight line and, and your your book that I want to get to in a sec is um is is along the same same uh same path as that. Is there any time in your career when you felt imposter syndrome or when things didn't go the way you expected it to and beyond bringing those times up you know i'd love to know what is there any strategies you put in place to get through those how do you deal with it those times better now based on what you've learned so my career and my whole life is full of setbacks full of times when things didn't go the way i wanted them to or, you know, you mentioned that you, you had this dream job and you, you ended up leaving. I've had dream jobs that I, I've left for one reason or another. The economy tanked. Um, you know, I'm, I was moving cities. They downsized. And so my career and my life had been full of setbacks. But I think in one way, I'm a little bit different than, than some other folks might be in that I don't actually have imposter syndrome. I have this inner cheerleader. Uh, my whole life I've had this and I don't know where she came from, but she's like, she's always like, yeah, go Angela, you can do this. You've got it. Go for it. Why not? And I think the reason why is because I'm not afraid to fail and I'm not afraid to be embarrassed. A lot of people are reluctant to try and, you know, 
go out of their comfort zone or stick their necks out because they don't want to be embarrassed. They think, you know, and what I've learned is really the world's not watching you. Nobody really cares. So if you do something and you fail or you stumble and you think it's like the most humiliating thing, it's not. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. And so because I'm not afraid to fail, because everyone fails, and that's part of it is understanding everybody fails even if they don't admit it. And it's not embarrassing because nobody notices and nobody really cares. And so I've been okay when I have failed in my life. And in the meantime, my inner cheerleader is like, yeah, go, you can do it, do it, go for it. Put your hand up for this, apply for that, you know, take a fencing class, try to arm knit a blanket, like whatever it is, just do it. And so I've been really fortunate in my life in that I've had this inner cheerleader help me. And so your the last part of that question was what do what strategies do I have in place to, to help me? I, I think it's really working on that um, self awareness and self management in the emotional intelligence piece. I know I've mentioned emotional intelligence a few times already, but it's really about acknowledging that as a human being, you're fallible. You are going to fail. Everybody fails. It's not the end of the world, right? I'm not a brain surgeon where if I make a mistake, somebody's going to die. And it's really putting things in context like that where you realize that, okay, so I failed. All right, maybe I'm meant to do something else. I'll either try again on the same thing or maybe I'm meant to go in a different direction. And every single time I have, and I'm doing air quotes, every every single time I have failed, something better has come out. Something better has, has opened its doors for me that at the time I wasn't sure of. But if I keep reminding myself that, that failing is not the end of the world, it's so much easier. That plus I have a really bad memory, so I never remember stuff that I did. <laughs> never. I do want to, I do want to say one other thing. Cause you said earlier, you said, uh, you know, you look at people you went to school with 10 years on, you're saying they went and worked for this consulting company and they make, make X and you make Y. And I'll say, first of all, Comparison is the thief of joy. Never, ever compare yourself to anybody. If you want to be unhappy in your life, for sure, compare your life to others, especially people you went to school with or your next door neighbors. And when you say you see your friend who who had that consulting job and was making X, I'm just going to pull a number in the air. Let's say they were making $200,000 a year. Let's just say. And you were making, let's just say, $50,000. I don't actually know what the numbers are, but I'm using this for illustrative purposes. You may not know that that person was literally working 90 hours a week, never saw their, their spouse, put off having children, didn't have any hobbies because they didn't have any spare time. And so you can't just look at the external trappings. Oh, look, my neighbor's driving a BMW and I'm still in my 1980 Honda Civic with a muffler that's hanging off the, you know, on the ground. You cannot compare yourself because you don't know what people go through in order to get that. You don't know whether they've got loans up to their eyeballs, whether they're leveraged to the hilt, whether they work 90 hours a day, whether they, they have marital problems because they're working too hard. So do not, do not compare your life with anybody's. It is a thief of joy. Uh, if you're, if you just say, today I am going to be better, a better Angela, a better Jordan than I was yesterday, that's what's going to keep you happy, not comparing with your neighbor or your, or your classmates. Uh, you're bang on because even the two people I had in mind that did that after about five or seven years, the one person now has taken a full year off because they've made enough money and they've realized that they neglected so many things 
And then the other person has moved back to their hometown to get involved with their family business because they were just tired and said the glamorous of it all didn't make up for the amount of time I was working and the amount of travel I was doing. Right. I I did hear you, you talked about this cheerleader and you talked about you weren't scared of failing or making embarrassing yourself and and that is something so many people worry about that how do you think you developed that like did your parents instill that into you was it the people you were around do you think you were just born with that i'm gonna say i think i was born that with that you know i have been you started off this this podcast by saying that i was interested in so many things and it is true I have had so many hobbies that I pursued just because I'm interested in it. And up until a certain point in my career, I always had two jobs at the same time. So I've had a lot of professions, but because I'm interested in so many things, if something doesn't work out and it's, I don't care about it enough to keep trying, like to just, I'm just going to keep at it, even if it takes me 20 years to achieve this goal. If I don't care enough to do that, I just move on. There's something else that's interesting. So so what if I failed? I tried it. It didn't work. Maybe it worked a little bit, but not so great. And there's so much out there that I want to experience in life and in my work that if I fail at something, so what? There's something else out there for me. And I, I think I've always had that because I've always been curious about things. This year, for 2020, I had made this New Year's resolution pre-COVID that I was going to learn something new every week for 52 weeks. And so I made this list and I've been tracking, you know, how could I learn it in a week? What was the proficiency level that I achieved in a week? You know, would I do it again? All of that stuff. And so I've been tracking it. And I tell you, so one of them was I was going to learn a Bruno Mars choreography to up down funk. Now, I got to give you a bit of context. That's amazing. Uh, I know. I love to dance. I love to dance. If I could make a living just dancing, that's what I would do. But I'm a really good Greek folk dancer, and I'm a really bad anything else dancer. So I don't know how many professional Greek folk dancers there are, but I'm pretty sure I cannot make a living doing it. That's why I don't do it. But So I love to dance. I would dance more than doing anything else in this whole entire world. I thought, how hard can it be? I love to dance. Okay, let's just say I reminded myself of Elaine Bennett from Jerry Seinfeld when she's doing that terrible dance, and I think I just dated myself. But if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go on YouTube and type in Elaine Bennett's dance, and you will see what I looked like doing Bruno Mars uh, Uptown Fun. But of course, because I'm doing this, I can't just do it in the you know secrecy of my house. I have to show my family, hey, look at this ridiculous effort. I don't think they've laughed so hard. <laughs> and that's it. You have to be okay with laughing at yourself a little bit. You have to be okay with saying, you know what? I kind of look like a dork doing this, but man, did I ever have fun. I looked stupid, but I had so much fun. And you have to be okay with that. Whether you're doing a Bruno Mars choreography or whether you're putting your hand up for a project and you're like, oops, I might fail. It's okay. It's all right. We all fail. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) The Bruno Mars. How did you get into writing? Because you have this book. And then I also hear that you're writing, you've written a, I think it's fiction. Yeah. And then nonfiction, I'm really excited to hear a little bit about the squiggly line career. So 
what got you into writing and what was the impetus to write Squiggly Line Career? So I've always, I've always written, like even as a kid, I kept a diary. I wrote really terrible, preteen, angsty poetry that my sister found in in my book recently and showed it to me. And it's cringeworthy, right? Because you're 13 years old writing all this angsty poetry about boys you have crushes on. So I've always written, and my my brother, who's older than I am, hey Nick, he's uh, 11 years older than I am, he uh, is a phenomenal writer, and he was a guest columnist for the Detroit Free Press, Uh, he would write stuff for himself that once in a while he would let me read, and and so I just sort of was always around writing, you know, because of my brother, and because it was something that I enjoyed doing, and so, actually, so... In 2012, I think it was. I can't remember exactly the year. Anyway, Gretchen Rubin wrote this book called The Happiness Project. And this is something that launched her career. She used to be a lawyer. And now she's a writer and speaker. And so I wrote The Happiness, or I read The Happiness Project. And by reading that, I don't remember what it was about it, but I thought, oh, I'm going to start a blog. But I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this blog, and I was inspired by this book to do it. And so that was my New Year's resolution I did. It's called RhymesWithAngela.com. You can still go on and see it. So I started writing a blog, and I had a pretty good reaction to it. But really, I just kind of enjoyed writing. I thought, i got stuff in my head. i got to get it out. And then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, and I often write um, articles on LinkedIn. And again, I just kind of like getting stuff that's in my head out and just writing it out. Now, you know, 20 years ago, there was none of this. You couldn't really publish it anywhere. But now you can publish it anyway. You've got blogs, you've got articles, you could contribute to the Huffington Post. Like, there's just so many opportunities to get things out. So I had written a book in 2017 called It Depends, which you already mentioned, uh, which is also published in French. But it was just people all my life were saying, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book, you know, about this and that. And the Squiggly Line career came about because I talk a lot about it, both with my HR teams when, when I have uh, HR teams that I'm leading, but also to students and people who are seeking career advice. And I talk about don't focus just on job titles. Don't focus on a vertical climb. You're, you're the junior accountant. Then you're the intermediate accountant. Then you're the senior accountant. Then you're the manager of accountants. Then you're the director, right? I mean, don't just focus on that. But go with translating your skills, go with competencies. And I was doing so many webinars and keynote talks and and that on this topic, I thought, you know, I should just get it out there and just put it on in writing what's sort of in my head and what I talk about and speak about and blog about. And that's how the Spring Line career came to be. That was the impetus for it. And as I was writing it, I started writing it for the candidates, like just for the general public. And then I thought, you know, I think I need to guide HR people and recruiters and hiring managers on how to take advantage of these people like you and me, Jordan, because when I was doing the research for this book, I realized there are so many people like us who either aren't working in a career that we graduated from or have switched careers or will continue to switch careers. And there's way more of us than I thought there were. And I think that if human resources, recruiters, hiring managers can really learn to leverage that, there will be no war on talent. They say, we have a war on talent. There's not enough people out there. Yes, there are. We have lots of people out there. They just might not have the job title that you're seeking, but they definitely have 
the competence to do the job that you're looking for. And so we need to broaden our horizon and that's how this came to be. And so what do you want people to, like, what's your goal with the book? What do you want people to come away with when they read it? I want uh, the general public that reads it, and hopefully everybody in Canada will read it, and the United States and, and other countries. I want people, the general public, to see that it's actually not unusual to have a squiggly line career, to switch professions, to switch industries, and show them how they can, as we talked earlier, translate their skills even if they don't have the job title, how they can leverage that. Because I think it makes you kind of special when you can bring experiences from other disciplines and other industries and help solve problems. And I want to guide and encourage people in human resources to expand their thinking beyond the very linear, let's just look at the job title, let's make sure people have five years experience, and really think about people's ability in terms of what they can actually do and not necessarily in terms of the job panel that they've had. So it's, it's both an encouragement for the general public, for job seekers, and a guide and a resource for human resources professionals on how to do that. Again, there are way more people like us than you think there are. I, I find it fascinating. Shout out to Ramona at the Princess Margaret, who's vice president of lotteries, which is the most successful healthcare fundraising lottery in the world, she was at Zeller's and she had a retail career and someone took a chance on her to come to not-for-profit. It's extremely interesting kind of the path that people take. And I, I love that number you had, 54% of graduates never kind of work in the field they graduated in. Few more questions. One of them is one of the reasons I started this is because it's something I love. I get energized by. I get to talk to amazing people like you. But I really found that my career I kind of looked at differently from the beginning. And I think my dad always said it to me. He's like, "Hey, in your twenties, don't worry about making money. Worry about building the skills that you want to take with you to the next step and give it a shot. If if you want to try sport marketing, give it a shot." And, uh, you know, he always said to me, as much as I felt the pressure because he was a successful executive in the pharmaceutical world, he always said, you know, whatever you do, I won't name any careers, but whatever you do, I'll be happy. I'll be proud of you. And I think that gave me um, the confidence to to do what I wanted to do. But I find that a lot of people are so unhappy with what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's kind of sad because we have this one chance. To, to live this life which is short mm -hmm. and I find that people just go into their job and, and some people do like that move from account to senior accountant to eventually CFO and that's right for some people and if it's right for you then amazing if, if you're content making $35,000 a year living in a small town that's awesome if you're happy and, and that's what you need but what do you have to say to that like in terms of the state of the work world and, and where you would like to see people get from a from yeah. a career standpoint. Uh, Jordan, you you hit it on the head. I hear people say all the time, "Oh, I can't stand my job," and and oh, thank God it's Friday because now I don't have to go to work for two days. And I think, oh, what a miserable existence if you really, you know, everyone in their job has some moments where you're like, oh, I don't pay enough to do this. Like it doesn't matter whether you're the mailroom clerk working for an insurance company or whether you're the CEO of a multinational company, you will have those moments. 
But if you can have more good moments than bad moments, then I think you're 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 better ahead. So I always say, like you, life is short. If you really are at a job that you're miserable at, you need to you need to change that. You need to pursue it. And so here's here's the problem. Your dad said, you know, don't don't worry about the money. And it's easier to do it when you're younger, like when you first graduated from school, whether you're graduate from high school or graduating from university, but you've got that, you haven't got the more traditional responsibilities that you might have when you're older, whether that's a mortgage or whether that's a family, you know, and, and somebody, you know, maybe traveling or earning a smaller income isn't right for you at that time, or maybe it is, but it is easier to take chances the younger you are, the older you are, you think I've only got so much runway, right? I need to make sure I've saved for retirement and I need to make sure my mortgage is paid off. And so people are more risk averse when they get older. So do it while you're young. But what I wanted to say is that one of the um, reasons I've been able, almost every single job I've had, almost, I have loved where it's like, I cannot wait to get to work in the morning. I'm a person who loves Monday morning. Because I love, I love the energy of work. I love being able to share ideas. I love being able to influence. I love seeing people grow. And so I love Mondays. I really do. But why I've been able to do that and get to this point is because I've not had to worry. Oh my gosh, I'm not stuck. If I quit my job, I won't be able to pay my mortgage. And so I've made my choices. So there was a time when I had no cable. I never went out for coffee, right? I didn't buy any Starbucks lattes. I didn't spend anything that I didn't have to so that I could save enough money that I could walk away if you need to. And so if I could say one piece of advice, whether you're 20 years old or 40 years old, is try and have that nest egg of three to six months, especially now with COVID. We all know some people were laid off and it was really stressful for people. Try and have that nest egg because if you can have that, you have a peace of mind. If you have a jaw, a boss who's a bully or you're in a toxic work environment, why should you have to be stuck there because you think, I won't be able to eat if I leave? If you can, even in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, have that nest egg, it gives you choices in life. And when you have choices because you're not stuck, because you're able to have that flexibility, you can leave an environment where you're miserable in your job because you your your coworkers don't have your back because your boss is a bully because your the work that you're doing isn't meaningful to you and doesn't fill your well and go try something else. Easier to do when you're younger, but if you can have that next day, three to six months, it gives you so much freedom, so much choice that you aren't stuck and then everybody can love Mondays. That's well said. Yeah. And and I was fortunate, you know, in my 20s and 30s, if something went really wrong, I'll admit it, like, you know, my family would have would have helped me out and everyone's not in that situation. I understand that. It's interesting. I listened to a podcast recently, where the person was like a 45 year old lawyer, she was in divorce law, and she just was miserable. And the person on the other side of the podcast said she wanted to get into broadcast journalism. And he said to her, you know, you've got two options. One, you can continue your day job and you can really grind it at night. Or two, the the lady said she didn't have kids. She didn't have a family. He's like, can you get rid of your mortgage and rent? Can you get rid of your BMW? Because she was like, I don't even care about my BMW. I got it to impress people I don't care about anymore. Right? 
Because um, comparison is a thief of joy. Stop trying to do that. <laughs> so good. Um, Angela, where can people uh, eventually find your book? And I know you've got uh, rhymeswithangela.com, and I did see something about the New Year's resolutions on that. Um, you know, you said you were active on LinkedIn. Where, where can people kind of find your content and find the book? Yeah, so the easiest way probably is through my website, which is angelachamp.com. Champ is like champion, so A-N-G-E-L-A-C-H-A-M-P.com. Uh, you'll find information about all of the books. There's more coming after Speaking Line Career. There's some workshops. They can uh, look at kind of some of the speaking engagements that I'm doing. So that's probably the best way. Um, professionally, I'm always open to connecting with people on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. On Twitter, I'm at at Angela underscore Chance, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter. And yeah, stop on by through the website or and say hi, and, and love to hear what you think about the, the podcast and the book. And remember, it's for everybody. We make a great Christmas gift for anybody in your network. Firstly, thanks for being on this. Thanks for your time. Yeah, I have one more thing I want to add. All right, throw it in. Yeah. Okay, so we talked about the Spooky Line career and why it's important. I just want to say in the last six months, we've been talking a lot about Black Lives Matter and diversity, and a lot of organizations have made this pivot where they really want to focus on diversity and inclusion. They're hiring more chief diversity officers. They're focusing on inclusion. If you really are serious about diversity and inclusion, uh, looking at Spooky Line career candidates, looking at what people can do, instead of just their job title or their education, is a really great way to increase your candidate pool of diverse candidates if you're really serious about it. Because a lot of people or some people who might make excellent candidates and are diverse, uh, maybe they're BIPOC, may not have the job title or the pedigree that you're looking for, but can really do the job and do the job well. So I, I encourage those organizations that are interested in increasing their their representation in their workplaces to consider the Spooky Line Career candidate and not just focus on job titles. That's great advice. And I did read about how when you initially got into Petro-Canada, I think you were involved in increasing the Aboriginal recruitment. Um, That's right. By, yeah. it, was, it was, what, 1.6% and it went to? 3%. Which way you were trying to match the uh, population of uh, Indigenous in Canada, which at the time was 3%. And so that was our, our target to increase it to 3%. Yeah, and just with everything going on throughout the world, and especially Canada, you think of our uh, Aboriginal communities, and, and I think you're right. You know, you have to look at the swiggly line career. Okay, my last question for you. I grew up a Hamilton Tiger Cats fan. I saw that you were the co-founder of an official fan club in the CFL, and I want to know what team it was for. This is the BC Lions. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Are you still a fan? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's awesome. I love the Lions, even when they have miserable seasons like last year. <laughs> well, we we got to hope that CFL is back in 2021, right? Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Well, thanks so much for doing this, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your Monday. <laughs> thanks so much. You too, Jordan. There you have it. Thanks for checking out It's Not a Straight Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
follow on Spotify. And if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career in life.